Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. And in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Michael Gervais on the podcast. Dr. Gervais is a world-renowned high-performance psychologist and industry visionary. Over the course of 20 years working with world-leading performers, Dr. Gervais has developed a psychological framework that allows people to thrive in pressure-packed environments. His clientele consists of the NFL's Seattle Seahawks, countless Olympic medalists, MVPs from every major sport, world record holders, internationally acclaimed music artists, and corporate leaders. Dr. Gervais is the host of the popular Finding Mastery podcast that explores the psychology of some of the world's most extraordinary thinkers and doers. Dr. Gervais and NFL coach Pete Carroll founded Compete to Create, an online and live masterclass for the mind. They have worked with more than 3,000 employees at Microsoft alone on the mental skills and strategies to unleash one's potential. Dr. Gervais and Pete Carroll have co-authored the recently released Audible original called Compete to Create. Also, Gervais is a published peer-reviewed author and recognized speaker on optimal human performance. He's been featured by NBC, ABC, Fox, CNN, ESPN, NFL Network, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Outside Magazine, Wired, ESPN Magazine, The Harvard Business Review, and others. Was that enough of a bio there, Mike? (laughs) And I get to be fortunate to be Scott Barry Kaufman's friend. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Mike, it is so great to have you on the show today, if I may call you Mike. Oh, of course. I've been looking forward to this with you. Been looking forward to it as well. I think it's been maybe a couple of years since you've last been on the Psychology Podcast. Congratulations on everything that you've been putting together. And um, it's not lost on me the work that you've invested uh-huh. in, in trying to understand how to add to the body knowledge of our beautiful field. So well done, mate. Well, thank you. That that really does mean a lot to me. It's nice to have that noticed, that hard work. So let's talk about Compete to Create. It's an audible book now. I mean, it was a training course, and now you, you've turned it with Pete into an audible book. Why audible? Why that format? Well, I'm a fan of listening um, as a f- form of learning. I really like the visual and auditory systems as part of learning. So we've, that's why we started the course. And then the reason we wanted to do an audible book, an audible original, as it's called, um, is as an extension to the podcast experience for people and as an extension that you can uh, listen to some stories rather than read them. And we will get Mm -hmm. to a book at some point, but uh, we wanted to start with Audible as we're fans of what they've done. Yeah, they're they're great. I think a lot of people are really moving to Audible these days. I think I may have sold more copies of my book on Audible than the, the hardcover version, especially during this this pandemic. This might just just be exactly what the doctor ordered for a lot of people, your book on Audible. Well, you know, we had a lot of fun putting together this 
interactive relationship between stories and science and very tangible takeaways. You know, like that's the thing about our field is that it's invisible. Yeah. And we're working on the interior life, which is incredibly tricky, you know, to try to illuminate and, and create something that is noticeable in the way that we can change because it's an internal private world that we're talking about. So I think we found the sweet spot between science, fun stories that he and I uh, banter back and forth, and then obviously the takeaway tools. Well, let me step back a second. Like, where did you meet Pete Carroll? How did that happen, that kismet? It was a mutual friend put us together. And so they had assumed that we knew each other based on our worldviews. And so uh, I said no, and he said no. And so this person put us together over a mutual... um, I'm sorry, over a dinner. And it was just electric. It was a great dinner, great conversation. We talked about, you know, obviously our worldviews. We talked about the science and the art, that intersection of of psychology. And then we talked about our calling for generativity, our calling to to give. And um, we both had some nonprofit, um, deep roots in nonprofit uh, arena. And so we talked about that as well. Yeah, there are lots of areas of mutual interest between you and him and the, the vision and philosophy seem to, to match quite well. What does the phrase compete to create mean? And I ask this because when I was on your show recently, we had a fun discussion about the word competition. And I want to concede something to you. <laughs> Maybe that's ironic. We're talking about competition. But, but what I liked about that conversation is that you convinced me that the word competition doesn't have to be this winner takes all sort of spirit, which maybe I had been thinking too much along those lines prior. Well, for good reason, because if we were to ask somebody off the street, or if even if you were to Google, you know, something on your phone for the word competition, it would certainly come up being better than others, you know? And if you go back to the Latin origins of the word, it is to strive together, to work together. And so when we go back to the origins it is like, it's beautiful. You know, it's this idea of working together, striving, straining together to figure out potential. And it maps on that, you know, Biblic saying about iron sharpens iron. You know, it maps on to this idea that we create a rising tide together. It maps onto the idea of put your life vest on first so that you can be there to help bring the best out of others, even in dire times. So it really is this idea of uh, the relationship between and the relationship between two people, but certainly we're double clicking on that and saying the relationship within yourself, and then we're extending it to the relationship with mother nature. And so, you know, and not competing in the sense, but building the relationship to help, to grow. And again, it starts with yourself, with others, and then with mother nature. But your, your question was about how do we come up with the title? As you can tell, we are not marketing, you know, dynamos here. And so we sat in a room for hours and we had all these inspired words about like what we wanted our company to be. And we, you know, and we had all really good words, you know, some were the the classic, you know, Latin origin words and some were of Asian influence and some were, you know, like American words that we, or English words that we love. And so we're frustrated because we couldn't find the agreement. And mm-hmm. so it, it kind of boiled down to, okay, well, Pete, what's, what's, what's the core word in your philosophy? And he said, yeah, you know, comp, comp, uh, compete. And he said, well, what's yours? And I said, create. And so I'll explain my philosophy in a minute. And so we looked at each other. He said, wait, wait, is it create to compete? No, 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 no. Compete, <laughs> to cre- compete to create. And then he goes, wait, C to C like from the seas to, you know, whatever. And so we just laughed and we said, yeah, yeah, okay, let's just go with it. It's weird. Let's go with it. Compete to create. And so it really means work your ass off, compete your ass off to create a living masterpiece. And so that's the essence behind it. Yeah. I think, I don't think it's a weird title at all. Uh, Maybe that's just because I love the word create, you know, that that's exciting to me. And and I was wondering what your thoughts were on creativity and, and how you define that word. Okay. Well, so now like I'm going to get step out of the margins of my lane into the square center of your lane here. SBK's lane. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so for me is when you create, it's uh, the act of uh, sorting something out that's new to you. 
And innovation is sharing something that is new to others. And so um, the creative process, I think, is the artistic creative process is one of the highest expression um, mechanisms that we have. And it requires a command of inner self. It requires a command of craft. And it requires the ability to be in the present moment. And it requires vulnerability and courage. And artistic expression, I think, is one of the highest forms of being human. And so, you know, it snapped into my philosophy which is every day is an opportunity to create living masterpiece. And if I could edit it slightly, it would be co-create. But um, because it's a relationship, you know, with self, others and mother nature, spiritual, if you will, the co-creating, but uh, not to confuse myself. It's uh, I love the word create. So I want to, I want to pause there and say, um, remind me how you see, because I've read your books, but remind me how you see and define the word create. There are very different definitions, as you know, and in the psychological literature, there's the definition of creativity as novelty and meaningfulness. It has to have both components. But I like to return to the old humanistic sort of just simple definition, like the role of May and courage to create. He's like, creativity is just you bringing into being anything that didn't exist before. I'm like, you know what? I'm cool with that. I kind of like this bringing into being part. Well, that's the, so I'm, I snap into the role of May piece as well, which is when it's new to you. Right. So when you do something that's new to you, that's part of the creative expression. And then when you share it with others, that's innovation. And that I, that that helps me sort out the difference between the two. And um, but the creative expression is awesome. It's the sponta- uh, spontaneity of it, but also the planning that goes ahead of it and the structure to break structure. I mean, I love that idea from form to break form, from form to formless. I love that idea. Yeah, I do, too. Is this related at all to the the Bruce Lee water. Of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course it is. But it's also like I, part of my training and yours is about structure and form. And that's mm-hmm. the gift that science can give us, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at some point we need to understand, well, where do we break structure and form? Mm-hmm. And if we, you know, triple click on the idea of form that inside of sports psychology, we often talk about pre-performance routines, And so having routines to help us get to a place that we can be free. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a huge fan of pre-performance routines. And I know the field and the industry is, you know, doesn't like me to say that so much because it's one of the core mental skills. But I want to just put a note out there that it's a substandard state. So doing pre-performance routines is substandard to the actual state of being here, being fully present and having this foundational approach to life, which is, yeah, no, I've got what it takes and I know how to adjust and I have some serious skills and I love challenges. So when I do this appraisal, that's a, you know, a nerd word that you and I like, when I do this appraisal of my internal and external, my internal skills and my external resources or challenge that I have what it takes, I can figure it out. And so anyways, it's a long way of me saying that I love the idea of form to break form. It's wonderful. Patricia Strokes, there's a great book she she wrote that um, not many people have read, but it's good. It's Creativity from Constraints, about how she goes through some of the best like, jazz uh, musicians, artists. They put explicit constraints on their process and so they could be more creative. It's actually counterintuitive that we, we think that the more options we have, the more creative we'll be when that's not the case at all. Uh, it just leads to being overwhelmed. I had a conversation with the former director of DARPA, and which is a, a very significant and important uh, innovative arm of the military. And she explained to me that the way that they would create and innovate is by creating constraints that were nearly unrealistic. And so that she'd say, I'd, I'd cobble together, you know, seven, eight, 12 of the brightest minds that I think could solve this thing. And then I'd put a ridiculous timeline on it and say, right, you got two weeks to solve world hunger, whatever it might be. <laughs> and they're, they really, you know, were about technology. And so, and she says, it's amazing. You take the distractions away, you put a, a really thoughtful team together and then create really clear boundaries and bumpers and constraints. And it's amazing what people can create. And so I, I learned that from, from DARPA, like the importance of constraints. I love that. 
And what is what is your thought? What are your thoughts on the role of the unconscious in competition and creativity? Okay, so can we talk about non-conscious before we talk about unconscious? Totally. Yeah, can we do that? Yeah. Totally. So so let me be mechanical for a moment before we enter the spiritual um, world yeah. of this. Um, spiritual slash psychological. Okay, so mechanically, if the non-conscious, well, let's go upstream. If the brain is has two main functions, it's a survival dictum. And part one is working in space in the environment for survival. So manipulating, moving, you know, working with your environment for survival. And then the second is like a meaning-making, inference-designing machine, right, to make sense that what what we understand or what I understand about the non-conscious is more aligned to habits. Mm. And so we go from something that takes uh, a lot of resources into something that we can do with some automaticity. And then when we can do it that way, it gets driven down into something that is more of a neurological patterning, you know? And so the non-conscious, the mechanical way of thinking about the non-conscious is that because we do things repeatedly, um, they become automatic, and that is a resource-saving ma- machine. It's expensive, you know, from a brain perspective, from a psychological safety mechanism. It's expensive to try to focus on things that could be um, automatic. Mm-hmm. And um, so, the non-conscious for me is a part of it is a bunch of patterns and being able. And this is where I think heuristics make sense: is yeah. that heuristics are that snapshot ability to um, have a quote-unquote shortcut to what this moment means and what I need to do in this moment to optimize it. And if we're not careful, just survive. (laughs) But, you know, you and I like to think about optimization. So non-conscious is really about these, um, the patterns that sit underneath the surface that we don't need to think about from a mechanical standpoint. And that is very important for the optimized experience as a human. Um, And it's also a trap. So it's, it's got both of those. Yeah. Total double, double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Well, this idea of optimization, it's inter- very interesting to me. I was hoping we could unpack it a little bit intellectually. I, w- so, I, w- I, I would love to do that with you, but I, I want to hear your take on what I just said. Because I, our friendship, and I, what I love about our me? friendship is that, yeah, because we go, like, we go back and forth, you know, about things. And iron sharpens iron. So I, I respect your acumen and your intelligence and your curiosity. So I'd love for you to push back. Or, or nod your head to how you see the non-conscious. Thank you, Michael. My, my style is, um, when I'm doing the interviews, is instead of just turning the spotlight back on me, I ask clarifying questions, and then that'll stimulate in me some... It help, it's like a covert way of me being able to comprehend areas of agreement and disagreement. So I was hoping if you could unpack a little more what this idea is of getting better... And then I'll respond to that once you can do that. Sure. But but what I what I um, want to understand is you know you talk about optimization, but in a lot of ways your your book is about getting better. And what I what I want to understand is your conception of like what is the asymptote there? Like what what is the end game? What is it? What are you? What's your north star goal of to mean? What does it mean to get better? And once I understand that better, then I'll I'll definitely weigh in. Beautiful. Well, let's go north star first, and then I'll work backwards. Great. So the north star is being. Being here. Wow. Not being, doing. No. Mm-mm. Being present. Being authentic. Um, being grounded. You know, having your mind and your body in the same place, doing the same thing. And so that's the essence of it. And the axiom that sits underneath that is you have everything you need already inside you. And to do the being. And so let's start with the North Star. That's the North Star. And then when we think about what happens for most people is being is easy. Let's say over a cup of tea with friends or a glass of wine at dinner, like being is easy when the environment is easy. Okay. When it's conducive, when it's favorable. And as we go up the ladder or titrate up stress or pressure or uh, consequential environments, can you still be you? And so what does that mean to be you? It means your mind and your body in the same place doing the same thing and doing it authentically to your principles and your value structures, your like your virtues. And I don't really love the word virtues, but doing it into your character style. And so that's what it means. Now, what I have come to find is that we need mental skills 
to be able to do that in the most consequential environments. Because we start to make different sense of what happens if. Maybe I can't be myself because I need to play it safe and small or I tighten up or whatever. And it's really hard to be free when you have the perception of a moment having consequence. And so, so that's where mental skills come in. That's where the getting better at the mental game is about. And so it's the mental game really is twofold. When I think of psychology, if I could oversimplify the beautiful science that we have fallen in love with, is that there's a discovery um, piece to it, and then there's a skill building piece. And so I just want to oversimplify that we need both. We need to understand deeply and who we are, what we're about, how we make sense of the world around us. And then the other part is like, what are the skills that are going to help? What are the psychological skills that are going to help me be about it on a more consistent basis? And when that happens, I got it. And I don't, I don't know anyone that has it, <laughs> you know, maybe Dalai Lama and Jesus and, and Scott no. Barry Kaufman, but like, no, you know. no. <laughs> no, no, I love what you're saying. And I, I just still did in my, in my notes as you were talking to know thyself and then be better than yourself. <laughs> Let's think about that for a minute. Know think thyself. about it. Think yes. about it. Know thyself. Yes. Because, be because, you know, Carl Rogers talked a lot about, I know you like Carl Rogers too. We both nerd out over Carl Rogers. He says, the curious paradox is that once I accept myself, then I can change. And, it, you know, this discovery part, you may discover things you don't like about yourself, but you still accept them, but you still want to change them ultimately. So oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. That's what's up. And so um, I think that it's, it, that's important nuance to bring about is that there is there, it, when you use your imagination or you're around people that are going to use their imagination for you, that one of the things that we can do is we can imagine what it's like when we are truly, authentically ourselves in all of its um, essence and we're our highest form, right? The most joyous, whatever that means to you, the most joyous, the most intense, the most present, whatever that means to your unique way of, of engaging in the world, yeah. that that is... That aspirationally is the idea. And so when you use your imagination, and sometimes that means you toggle back to times in your in your past where you have been absolutely brilliantly present, and you wonder, like, can I do that more often? You know, what would it be like if I was that, more, that version of myself more often? That's what I'm talking about, like creating this idea, this vision about what it means when you are fully syncopated and integrated into an environment. And that environment potentially has what once brought you stress. You can mitigate that or even dissolve that pressure by um, being fully skilled and having a deep commitment, a fundamental commitment to be yourself in every said environment. And so um, I'll just add one little nuance to the end of this and I'll stop talking is that I mentioned somebody else using their imagination. That in some respects is the highest a one of the highest forms of love is that you're so present with another person that you get glimpses of what it would be like for them to be what you've seen and smelt and heard and felt wow. for them to be about it on a regular basis and then you you're so present with them that you see it you feel it and then you have that vulnerable meets courageous meets bold relationship to say to that person Hey, you know what? Can I share something with you? They say, yeah, what's up? So when I think about like what I've seen from you and what is amazing about you, this is what I see. What do you think? And then there's this calibration of like a better, the, a better version of, of you. And that in many respects is one of the beautiful gifts of love. See, this is why this dialectical is beautiful because I'm just modified modified on the spot, my two maxims. So it sounds like know thyself and then become a better version of yourself. <laughs> yeah. And then what that gets tricky is that when you really know yourself, are we talking about embracing all of the character flaws and all yeah. of the assets, right? Like all of that. Yeah. Yes, we are. Yeah. And then we're saying, if you were able to like you think about this expanded version of you and virgin's got a, it's, there's a complication with that language, right? Um, because it sounds like it's a thin slice, like a version, or it's a manifestation of, uh, something that is less than now. But if you were to embrace what it would be like, if you were more consistently loving, 
more consistently authentic, more consistently caring or compassionate or whatever. That's what we're talking about. Like if you're, if you're working on, I don't know, strength, what would that look like and feel like? And then we, that's the North Star being that more often. And um, then we back into a, a strategy and a plan to help make that happen. I guess the way I was thinking about it is that when you focus on things like mindfulness and, and attention, you use those as skills to be as present as you can to the best that's within you so that you don't get constantly distracted by and pulled into other people's dramas and, and other people's selves. I guess that's what I was thinking about, you know, why your skill building is so important is because that skill set gives you the attentional abilities to not be so driven by everyone else's desire to suck you into their life story, you know? So I don't know, that's the way I was thinking about it. That's it. That's exactly how I think about it as well, is that, you know, it's through the relationship with ourselves that we become with others as well in mother nature, but that relationship is born through deep focus and attention. And when we're in mechanisms or I'm sorry, environments of perceived or real pressure or consequence, then our attention goes to something that is more immediately uh, required, which is survival. Mm-hmm. And so you, you nailed it. And, you know, when you learn how to be aware of what's true and what's present and what is unfolding and how you're responding to the unfolding environment, you end up learning that not all your choices are the ones that are beautiful. Sometimes they're scratchy and irritated and frust- full of frustration, you know, and if you, if that's okay for you, then that's okay. But also it's, it's important to embrace that when we are frustrated with others, that there is some of scar tissue that happens in the relationships. And, um, mm. you know, so that's okay. We just need to, you know, spend more time, I think, becoming aware. And when we, when people do embrace that deep commitment to awareness, which is what mindfulness really is about, you know, that, um, or a significant part of mindfulness, we end up recognizing that we're all just trying to figure it out. Like we're, we're just trying to do our very best based on our genetic gifts and, and liabilities based on what we've been taught, what we've been untaught, you know, um, we're just trying to figure it out and do our best. Some people have incredible natural skills and, but most people that pursue potential have a relentless commitment mm-hmm. to organize their inner life and their skills and, and physical skills and talents, their craft, to be able to express them across said environments. Yeah, it's a good point, but there's surely there's individual differences in that, as you point out, those who are committed to that. But aren't there a lot of people who aren't trying to do their best? <laughs> I mean, they don't, they don't, they're, they're not consciously actively working towards that. You know, it's an interesting philosophical dilemma about humanity. Most people that I know, well, let's talk about the people I work with. They, they're the half percenters, you know, the, the absolute freaks in the way that they've organized their life to express their talents. Most of them would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd still say that, but there's more to go now. Mm. Then when we double click to, you know, the 99%, the rest of us, I think, I'd love to hear what you think. I think most people think that they are doing pretty well. They're trying to be their best, but they also know that there's more to go. So I don't see a big difference other than the fundamental orientation of how you design your life. And I say that because so often, as you recognize, people are looking for shortcuts and hacks and tricks and tips and seven steps or whatever. And that's all bullshit. There's none. It... We make a mistake. Bro, <laughs> you just like telling a lot of people Santa Claus don't exist. <laughs> I know, I know. So um, we make a mistake when we see the people on the podium and we say, oh, it's amazing. Look at the hardware. Look at the, imagine their life. Now look at what sits before it, which is the fundamental organization of how they manage and structure their life, their day-to-day life. It's a fundamental commitment towards that aim. So I think most people know that they are, think that they're doing pretty damn good and know that there's more to go. Even if you're on the continuum of mental illness, on the, on the continuum of the human experience from mental illness, suffering all the way up to some sort of optimization. I think everybody uh, has pretty much 
the same approach, which is I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing my best and there's more to go. Take people who score high in like the dark triad of personality, which is what something I've studied, you know, narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism. So their primary motivation is, uh, like I'm not convinced their primary motivation is growth and trying to be their a best self. Their primary motivation is how can I exploit others? How can I uh, manipulate others for my gain? How can I have control over others? Would you would you still say even in those cases those individuals are trying to uh, just, they're just they're just doing their best? Like would you say that about dark triad individuals? Okay, so let me pull this apart in two di- directions. One, their north star is different than the north star you and I are talking about. So exactly, the, I think the framework is still the same. Hmm. That they are working. Um, the dark triad folks are. I don't know if I can use this word, but they're skilled. You know, like they're really committed to let's call it power. They're really committed to something that you and I are not committed to. And they are organizing their life toward that aim. So they, their commitment is important. Okay. And so they're, they're flat out committed just like the rest of us. It's just a different North star. Well, that's what I was thinking is that, you know, people definitely, definitely have different North stars, but you think that within them is still this, this potentiality that wants to be a better person. No, not be a better person. Okay. I, I think that they want to be better. And their North Star is just different than... That's right. Yeah. This is super complicated, but um, let's answer, see if we can answer this question. Was Genghis Khan a good leader? Was Mussolini a good leader? Was Hitler a good leader? Was Bin Laden a good leader? You know, like, it's complicated to even bring that question up because of the destruction that they have left in their wake. Mm. Were they trying to maximize their approach toward their North Star? Probably. It's not the North Star you and I are anywhat invested in or even find to be beautiful. Mm. But was how did they organize their life? Fundamentally toward that North Star. And that's what makes it scary to me. Not everybody's nice, kind, Oh, no, loving, sure. <laughs> beautiful. There, there's evil, dangerous people in the world. So this is really helpful to clarify, help me clarify your 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 worldview and what you and Pete argue in the book, because you're you're ensconced in this uh, world of sports where, for a lot of people, I mean, doing is what matters. You you don't just you don't have people you don't have the quarterback you know taking the ball and start meditating in the middle of the field. And he's like, you know, he, like he's like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just gonna be be during this game. So how do you um, how do you help the players balance the two, or not maybe balance isn't even the right word. Integrate the two where they're they're being on the field, but they're still like they want to win the game, right? Like let's be honest. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good question. Yeah. And thanks. I, I, I like I, keeping it real, Mike. You you like that? Yeah, for <laughs> yeah. sure. It's a big word yeah. to me. Yeah, or big phrase. So. Um, well, so let's think about like how this works, because I, I really appreciate that you pulled back the word balance. Integration is a better word. And then so the preparation, it requires whether you're a Zen Buddhist, whether you are a quarterback, whether you're an entrepreneur or a parent, it requires some sort of development, inner development of your inner skills as well as external skills to be able to integrate those two or merge them in a moving environment, right? And so the moving environment is like this moment to the next moment to the next moment. And then based on your perception, you compress the intensity of that moment. And your perception is like, does is this a big moment? <laughs> Which you and I will humbly, I think, chuckle that there's no such thing as a big moment, that there's just, there's again, this moment and Didn't Drake have a song arguing uh, there is such a thing as a big moment? I don't know. I mean, you know, like. I feel you. I think that it's when you listen to ESPN and Fox and whatever, like the defining game, the biggest moment of oh, their yeah. life, you know, like, like it's a common narrative. But when you strip it down, it really is this moment is all we get. So how do we do this? There's a training and preparation. And that's a big part of integrating the being and the doing but it is really about doing. And so, and then when you're out in the field doing your thing, it really is about doing in that moment. So how do they relate? Is that 
instead of putting doing first, so I'm a human doer, you know, that that old kind of narrative is a little bit trite, but the idea to reorganize and decouple the idea that I am what I do, decouple the idea that I only matter based on what I do. And what we're seeing is the best in the world are doing this very um, aggressive move that they're saying, no, 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 hold on. I need to be first. I need to make the commitment to be in the present moment because that's the keyhole for high performance. It's also the keyhole for wisdom and love and beauty and true and good. So I need to be committed to the being first and then let the doing flow from there. So what does that mean? Be present, be grounded, be authentic, be creative, be skilled, be first, and then let be the loving, doing be loving, be loving, yeah. and then let the doing flow from there. And so that that's a that's a revolution. That is oh, not for, yeah. For that's sure. that's a revolution. It's a revolution of organizing organizing thought to be able to flourish in any environment that you want to be in. This is why I consider you sine qua non in your lane. Like there's no one like Michael Gervais and I'm going to explain why. And I really do mean this. You have been a meditator for 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. You've really practiced the art of being personally, and you're simultaneously very much in the high performance space. You tend to see, you know, people who are expert meditators, they, they stay on the mountain, in a lot of ways, and, and no disrespect to expert meditators listening to this podcast that just because you're not playing for the Super Bowl, I don't think any less of you or you know, on the Super Bowl field coaching. But this is not a matter of comparing you to others. I'm just saying why your approach is so unique, because you're combining this being aspect in a, in a really high doing environment. I, I, I wonder on a personal level, Mike, does it ever give you do you ever face a tension? Do you ever feel like there's the, the being the doing part are kind of, it's hard for you to, to, to integrate the two among the players that you, that you coach? Oh yeah. It's hard for me sometimes too. Mm. And I've spent my life trying to sort out this relationship between the two being and doing. And I'll tell you why is because, okay, let's be materialistic in a moment for a moment is that if the doing doesn't go well and in mm. high performing environments, the runway is short. In the most consequential environments, if you make a mistake and you were to perish or a loved one were to die, like the runway is incredibly short with a mistake. Okay. But then when you think about rugged environments, like the NFL is a rugged environment and the performance standards are really high. So it's like, I think it's the first four games of the season is somewhere in there, four to six games of the season is where coaches are getting fired based really? on, based on what? on the doing. So here's the challenge on the, just on the, on the most basic level is that, um, and, and I'll, I want to talk about the dilemma in a moment, but the challenge is if the doing isn't good enough, <laughs> people are, are going home, you know? And so what does that mean? There's a, there's an existential threat potentially to um, safety and, and security and all those things that are so important, you know, to your work with Maslow. And so that, that's, that's a struggle. And then the other part is like, it's also like you want to see people do their very best. But how? How do people do their very best? It is by committing to being. And so you, you actually can't just hear me say that and say, yeah, that sounds intellectually smart. You have to really understand and embrace what it means to be fully present, whether they're rubber bullets or live bullets. What it means to be in a moment that is consequential and drop your hips and have that thing behind your eyes that is a force to be reckoned with, whether it is a spiritual leader or somebody fighting for their family or somebody that is competing with teammates, you know, skill against skill and dropping your weight, you know, your hips and having that thing behind your eyes, you recognize it when you're in it. And there's something incredibly expansive when you are able to harness it. And I imagine that's what Dr. King felt when he was on stage, you know, with his, his beautiful speeches. And I imagine that's what Mandela was, was feeling when he was writing his prose. And I imagine that's what um, Buddha felt when he was underneath the tree, you know, like I imagine that's what Scott Barry Kaufman is like when, you know, he puts together the final touches of like the commitment of his book. Like I imagine that that's, that's what it's about. Like you're really able to be present 
and have some conviction about yourself and at the same time be fluid and open and adapt to the unfolding, unpredictable unknown, which is, man, that is such an electric way of going through life. For sure. Yeah. I, I often, sometimes I'll go days, I'll forget to eat. I'll forget, I forget, oh, call my mom back. That's bad. That's really bad. Don't ever forget to call your mom back or else how moms often, come back with a vengeance. How often do you and your mom speak? Well, we try to every day. Mm-hmm. We try to every day. You know, it's uh same with my dad, who's my, you know, my best friend really. But anyway, I, I don't want to take a detour. But yeah, I love I love a lot of what you're saying. It's it's really great to kind of from hear about someone who's all about being who, someone who's in the on the front lines in a way and i imagine the same principles right if i it could be applied to the army could be applied to um you know if I, if I was talking to someone in the navy seals they would probably tell me something very similar which is you know we're we have the goal right like do this and and, and they're pretty lofty goals but they're probably not thinking about the broader goal in the moment they're thinking about probably micro goals of of pure absorption in trying to survive and deal with certain situations. Is that right? Yeah. And then after the age of like three, we detrain ourselves away from the ability to be fully present, you know, because we've got all these mm. um, perceptions that we're working with and heuristics and, you know, we've got, we've got noise. And so this really is the practice, the psychological practice of discovery and mental skills is really about um, being more proficient with the signal to noise ratio. So what's the signal? It's the present moment being where your body and your mind are doing the same thing. And the noise are all the things, whether they're internal distractions or external distractions, are all, it's all the noise that are pulling you from either having an unskilled mind or having a, let's call it a lazy approach, a, an undisciplined approach you know, to being present. Um, yeah, so it's the signal-to-noise ratio. It's an engineering term, but I think it's a psychological term, maybe even more importantly so. Oh, absolutely. Um, it has a lot of ap- applicability for a lot of, even down to like the dopamine level. People have used that, you know, in terms of like uh, schizophrenics who have too much dopamine, they have too much of noise and not so much of the signal of reality. So that, that metaphor has been used in so many ways to understand human psyche. So you've introduced a concept in your book uh, that you say is one of the great constrictors of human potential, and you call it FOPO. (laughs) I love it, Mike. I love it. Can you tell us a little what FOPO is? Fear of people's opinion. And um, so good. Yeah. I think. Did you coin that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like it was an accident, you know, how things happen. And um, I think it's one of the great constrictors for modern times. So remember, our brain is trying to sort out survival. And this is not, there's no stretches I'm going to make here, but. Not long ago, the great dangers of our our world were, you know, lions in the bush and, and warring tribes and whatever. So we had to be really attuned to our environment for survival. And we don't have lions in the brush anymore. You know, that's not kind of what's happening. But our brain, our ancient brain is still attuned to the environment. And so what are the great threats right now if it's not a lion? Well, it's what people think of us. And um, it's heightened by our social media platforms that are sharing oh, yeah. what is wonderful. It's the highlight reel of others. And so it's creeped up on us, I think, in a pretty dramatic way is that one of the great constrictors, fear is a constrictor, literally from a neurochemical, neuroelectrical, neuromuscular approach, creates an environment of constriction that um, we end up playing it safe when we feel that um, there's a threat. And so the threat is being kicked out of the tribe, not being good enough. And so I think it's in modern times, that's the one we're wrestling with. Uh, otherwise, why would, why would people struggle so much to be on stage? Mm. Really? What's at risk? It's one thing. It's what other people think of us. That's it. It's the only thing at stake. And because the people don't. Well, think, I'm afraid my pants are just going to fall down or something yeah. spontaneously. <laughs> <laughs> that's my fear. <laughs> Oh my God. Has that ever happened? Never, but I, I did. I think my fly was down once and that was horrible too. Uh, same, same thing. I was, uh, I was mortified. It was a, um, halfway through the break. Yeah. And so it was like a, a, a three hour thing. It was about halfway through the break. Someone comes up to me and goes, Hey, I just got to let you know. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And they're like, yeah. So <laughs> I, I've had, I've had it too, but you know, I mean, what we've all get? been there. Yeah. What are we gonna But do? here's the thing. Once you've done it and, and, and you make it through something, this is this is a point that we can build up to anything in life. 
I feel like it really gives me confidence that I can, I'm not so scareful, uh, fearful, scareful. I almost made up a word. I'm not so fearful again, you know, of being in that situation because my worst case scenario kind of happened. Ma- Abraham Maslow talked a lot about this in terms of death. He said, if everyone could just die and then come back, be resurrected, our second life would be amazing. I'm right there with you. And I think sometimes we get a look at that when we break up or we lose a job or we get cut or fired is that we make some commitments to ourselves about how, if we get another chance, how we're going to do it. Mm. And it's actually the origin story of how Coach Carroll ended up at USC Mm. is that he got fired twice from two different NFL jobs. And looking back when, if he was in the conversation, he'd say, you know, I just, I didn't fully commit when I was there. I was trying to be half me, half what the GM wanted, half what the owner wanted, half what the team wanted. Like, and I was, I just, I didn't have a full commitment. So he got fired from his second NFL job. And he said, I got to figure this out. If I get another shot, you know, at a, at a, at a six, potentially successful program, mm. I got to know who I am. I got to know what is it that I'm going to stand for. So he wrote pulled out spiral notebooks and just wrote. And that's the, that's the beginnings of having a clear philosophy. And so when he got a chance at USC, he's like, I know exactly how I'm going to do it. And during the interview, he's like, this is how I'm going to approach it. And the stat, the, the hiring committee was like, damn, that sounds pretty damn good. And he says, yeah, but I gotta, I gotta really go for it completely. That's the authentic approach. Yeah. And so part of what we do, whether it's in our book or our course is that we walk people through a process to get more clear. Is that a way, right way to say it? You get greater clarity about right. your philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a, I think what, what's powerful about having a philosophy, Scott, is that once you, once you know who you are, nobody can ever take it away from you. No external experience, no win, no loss, no sneer from others, no eye rolling, no chuckle, nothing that happens outside of you can ever take away your understanding of who you are. And that's a very powerful piece of work. That is profound. Especially, I don't know if you've, have you heard of cancel culture? I have. When you're canceled, you're saying you can still, like even that can't take it away from you. Mm -mm. Mm. Once you know who you are, Mm. nobody can ever take it away from you. It's a a really, really profound point. Yeah, Um, it is. We're thinking about that a lot, actually. We can give it away right? If we don't have kind of the internal skills and that's why knowing how to generate, I know, you know, this Scott, but knowing how to generate calmness is a mental Mm. skill. Mm. Knowing how to generate confidence is a mental skill and it is not dependent on past success. How about that for a thought? Yeah. It only comes from one place, which is what you say to yourself, but what you say to yourself has to be rooted in credibility. It has to be grounded in something that's authentic and real and hard and difficult so that you can earn the right to say to yourself, I can do difficult things. You know, that's the essence of confidence is like, I think I can go do that. And that's a trainable skill. Why would we leave that up to chance? I didn't learn it in third grade, sixth grade, ninth grade. I didn't learn it in college. I didn't learn it from sport. Matter of fact, I got taught something, uh, the, the antithesis in sport which was be confident. Hey, Mike, come on now, just be confident. And I say to myself as a kid, what the fuck are we talking about? Yeah. Well, what do you mean be confident? Well, just believe in yourself. Well, wait a minute. I, like I'm terrified that I'm going to screw this thing up and everyone, I'm going to let people down and Mike, come on, just relax. What are we talking? How? I hate all those things you just said when people say that to me. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's unskilled. I'm freaking out. Just relax. Just relax. You're freaking me out even more. Yeah. Well, it's, un- it's an unskilled coach. It's an unskilled, yeah. you know, um, yeah. applied psychologist. Hey, Mike, do you mind if I um, bring in my friend here a second, who's a terrific sports psychologist, Krista Stryker? She just wanted to ask you one or two questions. Would you mind? Come on. The unfolding and the unpredictable unknown. Yeah, let's go. Awesome. She, uh, she, she wrote the book, The 12 Minute uh, Athlete, uh, and she has that same app. Michael, it's so nice to talk to you. First of all, I'm just going to clarify, I'm not a sports psychologist yet, um, but I'm aspiring and I'm, your words just give me so much hope. <laughs> I just listening to that interview and like tearing up. I just, 
you I feel like you make everyone want to be better and it just gives me so much hope for humanity so thank mm. you oh my goodness awesome <laughs> sorry I'm like very you emotional right cry. now yeah um not, so you know what we call this we call it clearing the tube yeah you know yeah so ap- like it. before or after moments that uh, are are important that we call it clearing the tube and if you can clear the tube more often in life we can end up, end up holding on to less and it's um it's, it's incredible and so th- thank you for the kind words i appreciate that so I was wondering, you work with, like you said, the the top half percent, the most amazing people, elite athletes, you know, top of their game. And all of these people, from what I can tell, seem to love challenges. They seem to love leaning into that, that hard thing um, that the rest of us have really tough time with. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how the kind of average person the rest of us could love challenges more? Okay. It's a good question. Like, I I don't think there's an easy answer to this, but it does come down to something quite simple, which is to make a decision, you know, like make the decision. Um, How are you going to engage with difficult challenges? How are you going to do it? And if you make the decision and then like, and the decisions were quite simple. It's like, I, I, I know that challenges are coming. And I want to tell you a couple of stories as I go. I know challenges are coming. And I'm going to make a decision that when I'm in the, inside the challenge or approaching the challenge, that I'm going to fall in love with the exploration, the adventure, to, to see if I can be me and I can access my skills. Because that is the fundamental commitment I've made in life. It's that, it's that clear of a decision, right? As most people haven't quite made the fundamental decision and they see challenge as something that they're just not skilled at. So we got to go upstream, if you will, or down to the roots, if you will, and say, making that fundamental commitment. And I want to share a story. And Karch Karai is one of the greats and he is a volleyball player and a coach. He won gold medals at the Olympics for beach and for indoor. He's won medals as a coach in beach and uh, indoor. I mean, it's phenomenal. And he also won in the pro circuit, more medals than just about anybody. And he also won in NCAA double college. This is a, is a skilled human with a fundamental commitment towards growth and improvement. And he's got great skill, uh, great talent and skill layered on top of it. His mental game is unprecedented and he loves competition. So I had the chance of working with him in the last Olympics. And he says this to me, he goes, Mike, this was like year one of our four years together because we're going into the, uh, the 2016 games. So year one of the games, he says, and he looks right at me and he says, Mike, nobody ever wins a gold medal without facing down a double-barreled shotgun. And I just looked at him and I'm smiling and like, like inside and I'm just grinning ear to ear. And he goes, let's prepare our team for the double-barreled shotguns every day. I was like, yeah, that's a fundamental, that only comes from somebody who understands what it means to get after it and embracing like this, this idea that real challenges are coming. And so that's one story I want to share with you. The second story I want to share with you is that um, this happens just about every season at the beginning of the season, the football season or any season for people is that nope, nobody can do the extraordinary alone as you would recognize. It's too complicated. It's too big. It's too, it's just too big you know, to do the extraordinary. Yeah. So we need each other. So what happens preseason is that, um, we share this vision, we share this shared mission of, you know, what, what we're going to do together, hopefully. And then we lock arms. We say, okay, let's lock our arms here. And when we lock arms, we agree that we're going to do this thing together and have each other's back. But then at the moment that some real stress happens, some real pressure, some consequences perceived to real happen, you know what people do that are untrained? They unlock their arms and the system phrase, the ecosystem phrase. So those that stay locked in embrace the second fundamental commitment that we need each other. So if you can embrace this idea that challenges are an opportunity to see and get some feedback about my ability to be me based on my character strengths, like the tone, the style of me and my mental skills, which allow me to access my craft If it's just a feedback loop, that's what it is. And you know that you need more feedback loops 
And the second part is that we need to be connected to other people. And so can we access our ability to be ourselves in consequential rugged environments at the same time be connected to others? So it's just a feedback loop. That's all this is. And then the third piece is know the mental skills that you need help with. Is it relaxing and being more calm? Is it deeper focus? Is it the self-chatter, you know, the confidence inner narrative? And there's only a handful Mm -hmm. of mental skills to work on. Optimism, control, I'm sorry, optimism, um, confidence, being calm, deep focus are kind of the big four for me. And if you struggle on any one of those, you can back into them. And that's, that's kind of how it works for me. Oh, you talk a lot about having a craft that you're working toward. You feel like people need to have a craft to get better? It's a good question. It's a really good question is what is the craft? Well, it's the form of expression, whether that craft is parenting or it is um, finances as a CFO or it's management of people, you know, as a director or leader, or it is a psychologist or an athlete is certainly easy to look at or an artist. I think that the craft is our mechanism to express you say, well, what is Scott Barry Kaufman's craft? Well, his, is, his is certainly ideas and communicating ideas, both in written form and verbal form. And um, I would say the same for me, you know, like, and so what is your craft? How do you articulate your craft? Through writing and, I mean, writing and ideas and through fitness, because I love the connection between the mind and the body amazing. Mm-hmm. It's complicated, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> for am- sure. It's amazing. Yeah. There you, you go. You get to test out all of these mental skills. It's mm-hmm. great. I mm-hmm. forgot about my body. <laughs> I forgot I'm supposed to work my body too. <laughs> it's, it is, it is definitely the vehicle, isn't it? It's the, it's yeah. the, it's the, the carriage, if you will. It for sure is. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Good to meet you. Thank you so much. That was really generous of you to, to talk to uh, an aspiring uh, Michael Gervais. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. She's great. Um, I really recommend her book and app. Uh, so let me just end with asking you this question. I thought it was a really interesting question you asked in your book, and that's how do the best let go and trust themselves? It just, just ties so much of what we're talking about today and just, you know, what does confidence mean? What, what, how can we just, at the end of the day, learn to trust our being? Well, really what that's about is figuring out in the most credible way and how do you earn credibility is going through hard things, challenges, if you will, is that you have the inner skills to be able to adjust to the unfolding, unpredictable, the unknown. And so that's how you learn to trust yourself, that you can say things to yourself like, you know what, I don't want, I don't want suffering I don't want conditions in my life that will trigger suffering, but I know that I will figure it out, right? That I know how to be kind to myself. I know how to be strong. I know how to be confident, calm, and focused. Those are the kind of substrate, if you will. I have a fundamental belief that from an optimistic framework that the future is going to work out. And that's how we learn to trust ourselves is by going through difficult times. It's how we become forged. It's how steel becomes forged as well. And so this idea that we're going to escape hardship or challenge um, is a bit naive. (laughs) And so when we run to it, we get more skilled at it. And it is one of the things that athletes do well is that they are highly skilled at being engaged in the unfolding, unpredictable environments, the unknown, if you will, because every competition they go into is unknown. And so they're actually quite skilled at knowing how to trust themselves and better skilled maybe at trusting themselves than others. So step one is trust of self. Step two is trust of others. Oh, so beautiful. Michael, thank you so much for, for coming on the Psychology Podcast, a, a repeat performer on the Psychology Podcast, and for offering everyone your, uh, your really tremendous wisdom today. Hey, Scott, I appreciate your generativity. Mm-hmm. I appreciate what you stand for. I love your book. Um, thank you plural as well. And so I, I, and I love our friendship. So thank you for uh, sharing me with your community. Thank you. I love our friendship too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the psychology podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at the psychology podcast.com. 
That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.